You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Am I a Man or a Beast with Christopher Hudson. Hi, my name is Christopher Hudson, and I'd like to welcome you to this special Amazing Discoveries presentation. Before I open up the Word of God with you, as I always do, I'd like to invite you to have a word of prayer with me. So if you will, let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the privilege that we have to have your word. It gives us instruction. It gives us comfort. It gives us direction. Now, Lord, you promised, howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide us into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he hears, that shall he speak, and he will show us things to come. We pray for your Holy Spirit to move upon our feeble human minds that we might understand your purpose for our lives and that we might receive power to live lives of victory in Jesus Christ. This is our prayer, and we ask all things in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the book of Psalm, chapter 49 and verse 20, the Bible says, Man that is in honor and understandeth not, he is as the beasts that perish. Man that is in honor and understandeth not, he is like the beasts that perish. Now that word honor in the original Hebrew language from whence it was translated, it means man that is valuable, man that is of great worth, man that is highly esteemed. And he does not understand it. He does not comprehend it. He is simply like a beast that will perish. And unfortunately, due to the education that most of us have been subjected to, most of us really have a very perverted understanding of what it means to be honorable in the sight of God. See, as human beings we tend to look at people that hold particular positions in society or people that have a particular uh, pedigree to be those that are the honorable amongst us. Like we look at lawyers or doctors, judges, and we look at governors and presidents, all these individuals, the affluent, and we say, oh, these are the honorable, these are the people that we should esteem, these are the people in society that are of great worth. But the reality is in the sight of God, every Man, woman, and child is honorable. In the book of Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 6, the apostle Paul declared, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of thine hands. According to Hebrews chapter 2, once again beginning at verse 6, the Bible declares that every man, woman, and child, as we have come forth from the hand of God, he crowned us with both glory as well as honor. And I fully believe that the reason that God crowned humanity with honor is because he first crowned us with glory. Now, that might not mean anything to you, but it means a whole lot to me. 
Because you hear that word glory, and because you don't really understand what that word is pointing to, it may, it may mean little to nothing to you. But I need you to understand that when God declared that he crowned us with glory, it means something that surpasses the human imagination. In the book of Exodus chapter 33, beginning at verse 18, it's a very, uh, it's a very awe-inspiring scene because we see Moses, a man, communicating with God as a friend. As a father speaking to his son, God is communicating with Moses. And as Moses was communing with God, he says in Exodus 33 and verse 18, he said to the Lord, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. God responded in Exodus 33 and verse 19, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. So Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. God turns around and says, okay, I'll proclaim my name to you. God's name and his glory are one and the same. They're synonymous. Now, you might, have, you might not have caught this as of yet, but matter of fact, let me help you understand this with greater clarity. In Exodus 33 and verse 17, as Moses was speaking with God, God said to Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast asked of me because thou hast found grace in my sight and I know thee by name. So Moses made a request of God. God says, okay, Moses, I'm going to do it because I know you by name. And it's clear that when God said to Moses, I'm going to do what you're requesting of me because I know thee by name, he wasn't saying to Moses, I'm going to do what you're asking me, Moses, because I know your name is Moses, Moses. When God said to Moses, I know thee by name, God was saying, Moses, I'm going to do what you ask of me. Because I know your character. I know what type of man you are. When Moses heard God tell him that he knew the man that he was internally, he knew the motives that drove him to do the things that he did. He knew what inspired him to ask the questions and the requests of God that he made. Moses turned around and looked at God and said, well, God, you know me. I want to know you the same way that you know me. Lord, show me thy glory. Reveal to me your character. And then God turns around and says, okay, I'll proclaim my name to you. God's glory and his name, they're synonymous. They're one and the same, and they're directly connected to his character. So then in Exodus chapter 34, beginning at verse 5, the Bible says, And the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. God is now standing with Moses. And it said, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sins, and that will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity upon the fathers and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. When God proclaimed his name, he didn't say there, I am the I am. He didn't say, I am Jehovah. He didn't say, I am Jehovah Rapha. He didn't say, Yahshua. He didn't say, Yahshua Hamashiach. He didn't use any of these titles that many of us might use to identify him. God began to enumerate point by point the various attributes that make up his divine character. He said, I'm gracious, I'm long-suffering, I'm abundant in goodness and truth. I keep mercy for thousands, Moses. I forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. This is my character. This is my glory. 
And indeed, the character of God is his glory because there is no other being in existence that can lay claim to those character attributes. And if there is any person that exhibits mercy, it's because God has given them his spirit. If there is any person that is gracious, it is because the spirit of God is dwelling in that person that they might be gracious. If we're long-suffering, once again, why? It's because the mind of God is moving upon the mind of man. God's character is his glory. And so with understanding this, when the Bible told us in the book of Hebrews chapter 2 that God crowned humanity on the day he created us with glory, what God is simply declaring is the fact that God made each one of us to be reflectors of his character. No matter what your station in life may be, a pauper or a rich man, the drug addict, to the most educated individuals in society, each one in the sight of God is one that he made to reveal his character. That should change your perspective of that person that's sitting on the side of the road with their hand out the next time you pass them by. That should change your perspective of that person that's dressed a certain way, has markings on their skin that are different from yourself. Every person was made to be a reflector of the character of God. The Bible clearly states that in the book of Isaiah, chapter 43 and verse 7, the scripture declares, even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory, I have formed him, yea, I have made him. God made us with one purpose in mind to reveal his character. And as we understand this, as we comprehend that we, human beings, were made for the purpose of revealing the character of the infinite God of the universe, the creator, it should radically change the way that we live our lives, the way that we make decisions. We should no longer engage in the decision-making process and say, you know what, I want to marry this man because he makes me happy. Or I want, to, I want to study so that I can have this particular career because if I have this career, I can have a very stable life because I'll have a very, very, very comfortable income. No, every decision that we make should be guided by this overarching reality that God made us for his glory. Therefore, our thinking process, our thought process should go like this. Will me marrying this individual assist me in obtaining to what God made me to be, and that is one that reveals his glory? Will this career position me so that I can actually grow in doing that which God made me to be, and that is to reveal his glory. Every aspect of our lives must be governed by this overarching reality that we are creatures that were made to reveal the glory of God, the glory, the character of an infinite God. Imagine you, a finite human being, you were created to reveal the character of an infinite God. Just as God is infinite, his character as well is infinite. 
So how can a finite being reveal the character of an infinite God? The only way this is possible is if God created us as human beings with the ability to grow and grow and grow and grow throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity so that more and more as eternity rolls on, we can reveal the character of God more perfectly. That's a powerful thought. Man that is in honor and understandeth not, he's like the beast that perish. God did not place a ceiling on humanity. See, we were made totally different from every other order of intelligent creation. If you don't believe me, all you have to do is go to the book of Ezekiel chapter 28. Because in Ezekiel chapter 28, the most exalted, intelligent, created being, that being Lucifer, now known as the devil and Satan, is spoken of. And in Ezekiel chapter 28, I want you to really consider this with me. In Ezekiel chapter 28, when God speaks of this fallen angel Lucifer, I want you to see what he says concerning him. Ezekiel 28, I want you to begin with me at verse 12. It says, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say unto him, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou wast in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. The Bible then goes on to enumerate multiple precious stones that were on the personage of this being. And just so that you're clear that we're not looking at a human being, the literal king of Tyrus, the Bible says in Ezekiel 28 and verse 14, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. This is Lucifer. And concerning the beauty of his character from the time he was created from the hand of God, the Bible says he sealed up the sum, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. Now, what does it mean that he sealed up the sum? Imagine that I, had, uh, imagine that I have a, a bottle of water in my hand. Let's say it's a bottle that can hold eight ounces of fluid. I pour out the water, I go to the faucet, and I fill that bottle all the way up to the top, eight ounces of fluid. I take the cap, I put it on the top of that bottle, and I screw it as tight as I can. What did I just do? I sealed it up to its sum. The bottle is only capable of holding eight ounces of fluid. I put eight ounces of fluid in it. I capped it off. That's it. No more fluid can go in there. As hard as I might try, it was only created to retain eight ounces of fluid. And that's it. Lucifer sealed up the sum. As an angel, all of the beauty and wisdom of divinity that God could pour or confer upon an angel, Lucifer had it. He sealed up the sum. And the blessings that God endowed him with fitted him to be able to stand by the throne of God to cover the presence of God as God himself sat upon his throne because he was anointed cherub that covereth. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's a wonderful thing. Imagine being able to stand at the very side of God, always basking in the beauty of the glory of God, this, this just radiating beams coming from the presence of the creator himself. Do you know God has something more for human beings than that? Now, that might disturb some people when you hear me say that. 
it might disturb you because you're thinking to yourself, I'm just trying to make it into the kingdom of heaven. I'd be happy just to be somewhere near the throne of God. And I agree with you. I'd be happy to take any position in the courts of heaven that would be offered to me. But God has something more for us. And you don't have to believe me, but the Bible you do have to believe. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 3 and verse 21, a message to the church of Laodicea, the last church in Bible prophecy, God extends a promise, and this promise is powerful. Jesus says, to him that overcometh will I grant to him to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. You can search the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You will never find another scripture in which Jesus invites an angel or any other being for that matter, other than humanity, to share his throne with him. Lucifer was an anointed cherub that covered. He stood by the throne of God. But humanity that will overcome the plague of sin by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus says there's room in the throne for you. My friends, that's powerful. Lucifer stood by the throne, but the redeemed, God says, you can sit with me in the throne. And only royalty sits in the throne. Only divinity actually gets to sit in the throne. So why is it that God will extend to us the privilege to sit with him in the throne? You know, the Bible talks about the mystery of godliness, and the mystery of godliness is simply summed up like this. Christ in you, Christ dwelling in us, the hope of glory. When you understand that God's design is to dwell in us, Christ actually live in us, then you have to think to yourself, does Jesus have right to his throne? The answer is yes then if Jesus is living in you, if Jesus is Lord over your life, abiding, dwelling, residing in you, then God says you have right to the throne too. He invites you. Come sit with me. Be an overcomer. Man that is in honor and understandeth not, he is like the beast that perish. For God to make humanity in such a way, to make us in such a way that we can grow and grow and grow throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity and literally by his grace have the privilege, privilege of sharing his throne with him. My friends, there had to be some very special engineering that went into the creation of humanity. And there was special engineering that went into our creation and the Bible speaks of it in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, the scripture states simply, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. In short, we were made in the image of God so that we might reveal the glory of God. Now, I know that's not new information, especially if you're a Christian, especially if you read your Bible. You're like, it's okay, fine. I know I was made in the image of God. But what does that really mean, that you were made in the image of God? 
the Bible begins to expound on this reality in the book of Colossians. Interesting book in the Bible. I encourage all of you to read it. In Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 14, when the Bible speaks of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, it says this, "...in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins." Then verse 15 goes on to say, "...whom is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation." And when the Bible calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation, it is not insinuating that Jesus is a created being, but it's speaking of him as the firstborn, as the chief or the elder brother, the one chief in authority over all created things that are in heaven, that are in earth. He is the first. And this Jesus Christ, who is the chief over all created things, the Bible says in Colossians 1 and verse 15 that he is the image of the invisible God. And we were made in the image of God, which simply means that when God said, let us make man in our own image, he made us to be like his son, Jesus. He says, I want a people in my image. The one whom is the image of the invisible God, even Jesus Christ himself. Now that's powerful. The reason that's powerful is because when you begin to consider who Christ is, then you begin to understand more about what God desires for you to be. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3, speaking of Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the Bible says this, For in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So in Jesus, the image of the invisible God, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge of divinity, right there, deposited in Christ, right there. And speaking of this same Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the Bible says in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, rather 2 and verse 9, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Listen to this. So all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge they're in Jesus Christ. All the fullness of the Father, all the fullness of the Holy Spirit, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily found in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the image of the invisible God. But we, you, you were made in the image of God. Does that mean that God wants to deposit within us the treasures of his wisdom and his knowledge? Does that as well mean that just like Jesus, whom is the image of the invisible God, we who were made in God's image, he desires for the fullness of his presence, the fullness of the Godhead to dwell in us? Sublime thought, high thought, isn't it? But is it a biblical thought? Indeed it is. If you go with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, looking at verse 16. It says this. That God would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. That Christ might dwell in your hearts by faith. 
that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. God wants the fullness of his presence to dwell in each one of us because we were made in his image. How much more honor could God confer upon us? When I think about this, it takes me back. Because when I read my Bible, I like to think about what I'm reading. I like to ask questions to God himself. Why would he do things like this? Why would he even honor us specks of dust with such privileges? You know, as I consider, and the Bible declares that God is love, and love cannot exist without expression, the only thing that I've been able to come up with in my puny brain is that God, in God's original design, he created us in his image with this capacity to be like him so that we could love him the same way that he loves us. That's just a thought. Take it or leave it. That has come into my mind as I consider why would God create us in this fashion. However, what I have not needed to think up in my imagination is what God determines to accomplish in us and through us by restoring us back into his image through the plan of redemption. There is a very particular work that God is seeking to accomplish, not just for humanity, but for his entire created universe through the restoration of humanity back into his image. Do you want to know what it is? It's found right back there, same book of the Bible. In Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to read it. I want to make sure that I don't miss any bit of it. It says right here in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 9, And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hidden God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. And this mystery that Paul is revealing to us is the mystery. I've asked this mystery that I spoke of earlier, this mystery about how divinity can come and inhabit humanity. The gospel, the power of God unto salvation. All men need to understand this mystery, as much as God has revealed of it. God says he wants all men to understand the work that he's seeking to do in their lives, that we will cooperate with him, that he can bring it through to fruition. But what is he trying to accomplish through it? Look what the Bible goes on to say. Ephesians chapter 3, going forward round, going forward now to verse 10, it says this, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Did you get that? It's a little bit tricky, right? It says to the intent, in other words, for the purpose. It's to accomplish something. 
What is it trying to accomplish? What is this revelation of the gospel, the, the mystery of godliness going to accomplish to the intent, for the purpose, that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places? Now, what are these principalities and powers in heavenly places? If you look at Ephesians 6 and verse 12, it starts to give you a bit of an understanding because in Ephesians 6 and verse 12, the Bible says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, this scripture is clearly talking about the devil and the fallen angels. These are those principalities and powers spoken of in Ephesians 6 and verse 12. They inhabit the darkness. But back in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10, the Bible said to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places. That's the angels. That's the unfallen beings. And if you don't understand that there are other intelligent beings in existence, then all you have to do is turn your Bible, my friends, to the book of Revelation. Revelation, the 12th chapter. When, the, when Satan was casted out of the courts of heaven, well, Lucifer, now known, then known as Satan, when he was casted out of the courts of heaven, the Bible makes this statement. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 12, it says, Therefore rejoice ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. It did not say rejoice ye heaven, singular. Rejoice ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe unto the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath. The dragon has come down unto you having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. My friends, through the plan of redemption, God has a purpose that he's seeking to accomplish not only for humanity, not only for planet Earth, but what he's seeking to accomplish extends beyond our world to those that inhabit heavenly places. And what is he trying to do for them? He said through his church, he wants to make manifest or reveal his manifold wisdom. Through the work of redemption, as God takes broken men and women, degraded by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, and by his grace begins to cleanse them of their pride, cleanse them of the love of pornography, cleanse them of their, their, their backbiting, giving them victory over, over addictions, transforming the thinking and the speaking and the deportment that more and more day by day, instead of seeing corruption, the brilliance of the character of God begins to shine forth with greater perfection. Through this process of God restoring man back into his image, My friends, the beautiful spectrum of the character of God is being revealed to the universe in a way that they never understood the mind of God before. God's purpose through the plan of redemption 
is to reveal to the universe once and for all that he truly is a God of love. And he has to be a God of love. Be honest. If he would be so long-suffering and kind to deal with you the multiple years that you've been walking on the face of this earth, with all of the lying, the backsliding, the unkindness, the sin, the, iniqu the iniquity, the wickedness that you've performed. And still, with a gentle hand, he bids you to surrender your heart to him. Still, with a gentle hand, he's seeking to draw you close to himself. Can you not see how through this process of working with rebellious men and women, kindly, long-sufferingly, painstakingly, and gently, it is made clear that indeed God is merciful. He is gracious. He's long-suffering. He's abundant in goodness and truth. Through the plan of redemption, God wants the entire universe to know him, to really know who he is. And when you have a knowledge of who God is, when you gain an intimate knowledge of God, what you have now, I'll just tell you what the Bible says you have. And this is life eternal, that ye might know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. John 17, 3. To have within your possession an intimate knowledge of who God is, is also to have within your possession life eternal. Life eternal doesn't begin later. Life eternal begins now and continues on throughout eternity. Once you have within your possession the knowledge of God. That's life eternal. And the reason that this is so powerful is because the opposite of life eternal, now that's death. And death only comes through one medium, through one agency. Romans 6 and verse 23 declares, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death. The opposite of life eternal, death. Death comes as a result of sin. And how do you lay hold upon life eternal? By knowing him. Knowing him. Now, you might not have picked up on what I'm trying to share with you as of yet. So let me make it plain. Through the plan of redemption, God is seeking to give the entire universe an intimate knowledge of himself. Angels and men, he wants all to know him. He wants all to have that knowledge of him, which is life eternal. My friends, through God giving the universe this intimate knowledge of himself, he is seeking once and for all to inoculate the universe against sin rising up the second time. Because once the entire universe truly knows him, 
No one will ever lay hold upon sin again. Not because they will lose the gift of the freedom of choice, but because all will only choose him. Because they know him now, that God is love. And God is seeking to reveal his character to the universe through men, men and women like yourself, like us. And this is why the Bible declares in the book of Psalms, chapter 49, man that is in honor and understandeth not. He is like the beasts that perish. God has done so much so that we can know him. He literally laid down his life that we might be partakers of this gift. Even when you consider when God laid down his life for us, you begin to understand a little bit more how much we are honored in the sight of God. Because in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, a very interesting chapter in the Bible, it speaks of the Antichrist power, the first beast of Revelation having seven heads and ten horns, seven crowns upon its head. Like unto a leopard, feet as a bear, mouth of a lion. It's pointing to the papal power. But in Revelation 13 and verse 8, it says, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, the beast, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. The Bible says the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world before any of us came into existence, before God made this earth, even when God knew that sin was going to come into existence, we were in the mind of God. And even when God knew that we would fall into sin, even though God knew that we would rebel against him, before we even were brought into existence, God laid down his life that we might have life. When we were just sparks in the mind of God, he decided that he would give his life for us so that we could live. How much more honor could God confer upon you? Man that is in honor and understandeth not. Man that is of such great value, such great worth. Man that is so highly esteemed by God that he would lay down his life for you. And you don't understand this. You don't comprehend it. You live your life absent-minded of this reality. God says you're nothing more than a beast that perishes. You're living your life like a beast. And interesting enough, in the book of Revelation chapter 13, we're told that very soon, that very same beast power, that first beast of Revelation chapter 13, it will once again ascend the throne of global primacy. 
told in Revelation chapter 13. I'm going to begin at verse 15. Look closely with me. Revelation chapter 13, looking at verse 15. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast could both speak and cause that as many should not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead, that no man might buy nor sell, save he that had the mark of the beast or the name of the beast or the number of his name. My friends, this is getting ready to be a reality. Everything that is happening in our world right now points to the fulfillment of this prophetic truth. And when the mark of the beast is implemented, a situation in which men and women will be put in the predicament where they cannot buy nor sell except they receive it. Those who do not understand that they were made in the image of God, that an infinite price was paid to restore them back into the image of God. My friends, these people, they'll take the mark of the beast's because instead of letting their reason and their judgment govern them, like a beast, they allow their appetites and passions to rule over them. Like a hungry dog, have mercy. They'll take the mark just so they can fill their bellies. But those who know that they were made in the image of God, those who understand the value that God has invested in them, like Joseph, they will say, how can I do this great evil and sin against my God? How? Like Daniel, they will purpose in their hearts not to defile themselves with the king's meat. They will stand because they know God. Are you a man or are you a beast? How are you living your life right now? Daily are you making decisions that are prompted by the Spirit of God that are ordering your entire lifestyle in the direction by which Day by day, you are ascending the ladder to be more and more like your creator by faith. Or are you cooperating with Satan by moving after the pleasures of this life? Being caught up in the everyday round of affairs. And bit by bit, surely and certainly degradating yourself to a position that's as low as a beast. Because if you live like a beast, you'll take the mark of the beast. Do you understand? God is calling you to live like a man to live as one that was made in the image of God. And so my appeal to you, my appeal to you is to take your stand today 
Live like a man. Cooperate with the Spirit of God that you might be restored back into your Creator's image. Let Jesus abide in your heart. Invite him in today. And he'll do the work in you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what wondrous love you have for us that you would make us in your image. Help us to understand that we will no longer live our lives according to the base passions of this world. But we will seek after the mind of Christ. So the things that you love, we will love. And the things that you hate, we will hate. Restore us back into your image. And when Jesus returns, please save us in your kingdom. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit amazingdiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.com dot watch